This morning, we are uh, in Proverbs chapter 17. We've been working our way through the book of Proverbs, and we're past the halfway point. We're a couple weeks past the halfway point now. And at this point, um, as we look at some of these things, we still have a few more chapters where the Scripture gives us a variety of contrasts. And the contrast today that we're going to be looking at is this idea of drama or peace. So we're going to ask it as a question, and the the question we're going to ask is this, do you feed the fires of drama, or do you foster a culture of peace? Because there's a big difference between the two. If you're feeding the fires of drama, things are going to look one way in your life. But if you're fostering a culture of peace, you actually have a great opportunity to display the heart of Christ in multiple ways. And so if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 17. We're going to pick up at verse 9. And uh, then we're going to work our way down to verse 20. Proverbs 17, starting with verse 9, this is what it states. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. An evil man seeks only rebellion, and a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her clubs or her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. The beginning of strife is like letting out of uh, is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Why should a fool have money in his hand to buy wisdom when he has no sense? A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. One who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. Whoever loves transgression loves strife. He who makes his door high seeks destruction. A man of crooked heart does not discover good. And one with a dishonest tongue falls into calamity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to spend some time together this morning looking at your word together. And Lord, we're grateful that you give us this opportunity regularly. We're grateful that there are so many ways in which we have the privilege to access your word. We know, Lord, that there are many people throughout the course of this world that that find that quite challenging. And so, Lord... Here in our particular context, we're just grateful that you give us access to it, that, that whether we're in person or whether we're uh, accessing this information digitally, that you still make it available to us. And Lord, we pray that our hearts and our minds would be in the right spot this morning to receive the truth of your word, that we would understand the nature of what Christ-empowered peace looks like, and that we would choose to exemplify that in our day-to-day walk with you as you empower us to do so. So, Lord, we, we thank you for this time. We're grateful for the privilege to be able to look at your word together today. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, one of the things that, that my children know that I am proudest about in, on, on their behalf, or things that I, I, I really uh, appreciate about them, is that I think all four of them are hard workers. I think that that's something that, um, that they really excel at. And one of the things that they've heard me uh, tell stories about from time to time are some of the interesting jobs that I had when I was in high school. Anyone have an interesting job when you're in high school? Anyone have a job in high school that you would not want to go back to? <laughs> um, 
When I was in high school, I primarily worked at my father's grocery store. That was the main thing that I was doing. But I actually had several jobs that I was juggling at the same time. I I had a job that was actually a before-school job that I did six days a week. I had a a job after school at my dad's store. I also had a separate weekend thing and then a separate summer thing. And so I was juggling a variety of things. and, And I remember even at the time, some of my friends thought that was a lot. But I always enjoyed it because it allowed me to be exposed to a lot of variety. And I like variety. And so I thought, okay, I get to do different things and work with different people. You know, at times you feel tired, but at the same time, I remember in the process being exposed to a variety of people that I thought I learned very interesting and very valuable things from, some of which has stuck with me, some life lessons that have really stuck in my mind and stuck in my heart after interacting with the people that I had the opportunity to work with during that season of life. And I remember one coworker that I had in particular, my, my uh, sister, who's just a year younger than me, she and I were particularly close uh, to this one uh, coworker who was an older woman that we both had the opportunity to work with for several years. And I always appreciated her. I always liked her. But there was an interesting pattern that she demonstrated that it actually took me a while to catch on to. I didn't notice it at first, but once I noticed it, it wasn't something that I felt like I could actually uh, miss. It was something that was like right in my face. She was a very hard worker. She was very competent in what she did. I also thought she was a lot of fun. My sister thought she was a lot of fun, but she had one fatal flaw in what she was doing. And um, eventually it stood out to me in a cautionary way. You know how some people you interact with, you learn things to do. Well, this was something, this was one of those moments where I learned something not to do. And I've tried to keep this, this uh, truth or this lesson in my mind ever since interacting with her in a, in a lengthy way. Wherever she worked, whatever task she was given, like I said, she would do a good job, but she also created a lot of unnecessary drama. That became the pattern. And when I noticed that, I thought that was unfortunate because one of the things that it ended up doing in the workplace is that I would watch as it would create conflict between people. And I watched as it would create hard feelings, and sometimes people would take a while to get over those things. And so when you're working together day in and day out, sometimes that stuff would stick around. It wasn't very pleasant. And unfortunately, I think even though she was a hard worker who could be a lot of fun, I think she was also costing herself a lot of opportunities for advancement or for growth or for things like that because people stopped trusting her in that particular area. Her reputation became one where you could just about guarantee that whatever position you put her in, you were eventually going to have conflict. You were eventually going to have problems, and then you were going to have to try and settle everything down afterward. Now, I bring that up because I want us to be thinking about the relationships that we have in light of the scripture that we just looked at, because in our relationships, whether it be with our friends, whether it be with our family, whether it be with our coworkers, whether it be with our neighbors, we're called to model the heart of Christ. And we're called to model his heart in all of our conversations. We're also called to model his heart in all of our interactions. This world is very good at teaching us how to foster drama, and this world is very good at teaching us how to foster conflict. But Christ demonstrates for us what it looks like to bless one another with the kind of peace that he chooses to bless us with. And his desire, and think of this not just in relationship you know, with your biological family or your coworkers, but also consider this on the local church level. His desire 
is that within his church, we be feeding a heart of unity, that we be fostering a heart of unity, not a spirit of division. And that needs to translate into all relationships in our day-to-day life. And when you look at the verses we just read from Proverbs chapter 17, we're given great counsel on how that can be accomplished. And in this passage, again, we're challenged not to feed the fires of drama, We're challenged to foster a culture of peace that I think as members of the body of of Christ, we would do well to take notice of. And look at some of the very practical suggestions we're given here. Proverbs, intensely practical, right? And when you look at verses 9 through 11, we're encouraged here to seek reconciliation and restoration. So what would promote a culture of peace? Well, if you're going to seek reconciliation and seek restoration, you're going to do a lot to try and facilitate that culture of peace. Let me reread those verses again for us. Verses 9 through 11. It says, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. An evil man seeks only rebellion and a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Are you familiar with the name Tim Keller? I mentioned the name Tim Keller. Some of you know the name Tim Keller. Some of you are unfamiliar. Tim Keller is a retired pastor who writes, I think, a book once a week. You know, it seems like every time I I open a magazine or look online, it seems that Tim Keller has written a new book. It's so anticlimactic at this point now, right? You know, yeah, Tim Keller, and it'll be amazing too. That's the other thing. Everything he writes is amazing. When's he going to write a dud? I don't think he's written a dud yet. And a few years ago, I came across a book of his that just from the title, I was intrigued. And it's not a big book. It's actually one of his shorter books, but it's a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. You ever hear that title? It's not one of his better-known books. It's a smaller book, but I bought it. I I thought it seemed fascinating. I was like, I'm curious about that. I wonder what he means by that, the freedom of self-forgetfulness. So just imagine in your mind for a second, what do you think he's getting at when he he encourages people to practice the freedom of self-forgetfulness? Well, in that book, you you have Keller encouraging Christians Basically, don't be so full of yourself, right? Don't be so caught up in yourself. He reminds us of the joy of Christ-empowered humility. And here's a little snippet that the publisher uh, uses to describe that book. I want you to think about it for a second. The book summary says this. This is a book about gospel humility. And And it says, gospel humility means we can stop connecting every experience, every conversation with ourselves, and can thus be free from self condemnation A truly gospel humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a self-forgetful person. And I think we could probably even add to that somebody that thinks of others more frequently than they spend time consumed over-obsessing about themselves. And I think, in a practical way, even in light of what we just read from Proverbs 17, 9 through 11, I think that if we're willing to be a little bit more self-forgetful, we can get to that spot of reconciliation and restoration a little bit quicker. You know, when people offend us, sometimes it's tempting to hold on to those things and to take a long time to get over it. But if we're practicing like this, this mindset of just self-forgetfulness where we're not so consumed with being wronged and not so consumed with ourselves, we're not fanning the flames of bitterness in our hearts, we're not brooding over people that may have wronged us in the past, we could be a little bit more self-forgetful. I think we can get to that spot of reconciliation and restoration a little bit quicker. And in fact, when you look at what Solomon tells us here in uh, these verses from Proverbs 17, you have Solomon telling, in the, telling us in this portion of Proverbs that those 
who cover an offense are seeking love. Isn't that a great thought? Those who cover an offense are seeking love. But those who refuse to stop repeating the matter to every ear that's willing to listen, what they're doing is fostering division. So you're saying you could either cover love or you cover something with love and promote love, or you could end up repeating a matter over and over and over again to the point where you divide parties that should be close together. Now, um, earlier today I was interacting with a, a couple that I am uh, six days away from officiating for their wedding. We have a wedding here this coming Saturday, and I was talking with them at the earlier service, and, and I mentioned to them, I said, you know, in, in my message today, I'm, I'm going to be sharing a portion of Scripture that I'll also be sharing at your wedding in a few days. And, and there are certain portions of Scripture that frequently get shared in a wedding context. One of them is 1 Corinthians 13. You're probably familiar with 1 Corinthians 13 as being a chapter in Scripture that speaks about the nature of Christ-centered love and what it looks like when we practice that kind of love toward one another. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when you look at verses 4 and 5, it starts off by saying some things that we're familiar with and then ends with a statement that we are less familiar with. So let me start with what we're familiar with, but then I want to highlight what we're less familiar with because it echoes what Solomon is saying here in Proverbs 17. In, in Proverbs thir- or excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5, it says this. It says, love is patient, love is kind. And then it says, love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable. And then it makes this statement. It says, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. I love that line. I mean, it's all good, obviously, but that's a line that really sticks in my head and sticks in my heart because I find it so helpful. If we claim to love one another... There's a lot of things we have to overlook. You know, Solomon says that, you know, the way he says it, whoever covers an offense seeks love. It's the same concept that that you have the Apostle Paul speaking about in Proverbs, or excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 13. You know, it's the same type of thing that he's talking about here. The idea that that ultimately what we're doing is we're not keeping a record of wrongs. We're not keeping a record of wrongs. And how does this get, trans, or get facilitated in our lives? I want us to think about something for just a second. We're conscious of the fact, as believers in Jesus Christ, that we have had our offenses covered by Christ. That's what Christ has done for us. He's covered your offenses. He's covered my offenses. And because we're conscious of that, because we probably think about that a lot, we likewise have the privilege to delight in sharing with that, that blessing with others by keeping no record of their wrongs. It's basically just blessing others with the blessing we have received. Through Christ, our wrongs are not... He, he's not keeping track of our wrongs. He's, he's ultimately covering our sin with His righteousness. And He gives us the privilege to operate with that same mindset, that same attitude toward one another, because it it fosters reconciliation, it fosters restoration, the type of things that Solomon was bringing up in Proverbs chapter 17. And that's what a loving person is ultimately seeking, and they do so honestly. And Solomon here tells us that that process may involve a loving rebuke, may even involve words that are momentarily hard to hear, but that's preferable to the rebellion or to the division 
or to the conflict that's frequently fostered by those who reject Christ and those who embrace the harsh, embrace the harsh values of this world. So the Lord invites us to be people who seek reconciliation and who seek restoration for His glory. Very practical concept that you have Solomon bringing up in the opening verses that we just looked at here. But look at what he says when we jump into Proverbs 17, verses 12 through 16. He carries that thought a little bit further, and he encourages us to be people who value sense over strife. So if we want to ultimately foster this culture of peace with one another, we want to value sense over strife. Look at what he says in verse 12, and I'll read the verses following that as well. He says, Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Why should a fool have money in his hand to buy wisdom when he has no sense? Now, let me pause there for just a moment, and I want to ask this question. Which of these two experiences would you like to have in your home? And I already know the answer to this, but I'll ask it out loud anyway. Would you prefer to have the presence of wickedness, or would you prefer to have obvious examples of the Lord generously blessing your household far beyond what you deserve? Obviously, it's the latter, right? We desire to experience the Lord's blessings, even in ways that we don't deserve. So having a conversation with uh, my son just a couple days ago about the same concept, and he was pointing out to me an area of blessing that he had experienced in his life recently. And uh, it was very obvious to him that this was a blessing that the Lord had facilitated. And so we decided to do something fun together, and I'd encourage you to try this exercise at some point. We, we decided to trace the hand of God's providence in the events that led up to this blessing that he recently experienced. So we took it to the next step back. And then we went one step back beyond that, and one step back beyond that. And we were just tracing the hand of God at work in his life back step after step after step. Because I think one of the things that we can sometimes do in our life is we could look at our blessings and think that somehow we earned or deserved it. Because we're only looking at the last spot of that whole blessing where we finally responded to God's offer and said, yes. And we forget all the things that led up to it that we had no control over. And so it was fun to point out all the things that he had no control over, that we could say, all right, look at what God was doing for you there. You had no control over this. You had no idea this was even happening. And then that led to this, and then that led to this, and then that led to this, and then here's the spot where you responded. But look at the things that led up to that, that it was clear that the hand of God was at work to bless you in this particular way. And it was edifying to think about, and I think it was helpful for him as well. And then we decided to just trace the hand of God at work in our whole family. And so we were doing that just thinking about the things that the Lord orchestrated that we had absolutely no control over. And the only thing that we could even say that that we did was just respond when it got to that final step and say, yes, Lord, we accept this blessing from you. And we trace the hand of God, His providential hand, all throughout the course of our lives. And it's interesting when you look at the ways that God not only blesses an, an individual, but when you can say, all right, Lord, you've blessed our whole household. Blessed our entire household, just like Solomon was saying in these verses. Blessed our whole household. Now that contrasts with the effects of the warning that Solomon gives here, doesn't it? Here he tells us about the effects of returning evil for good. 
And in that case, a household doesn't experience blessing. It rather experiences the presence of evil. That's what Solomon says here, that basically if somebody indicates you know, that, that their entire life is going to be spent returning evil for good, they can continue to expect the presence of evil in their life and the presence of evil in their home. And that's what Solomon was trying to explain here. The spiritual and the relational effects of their decisions will eventually deliver that bitter fruit. And so Solomon gives us that picture here so that we understand that it's a contrast that we're, we're called to avoid. But those who have ultimately been blessed with wisdom from the Spirit of God, they learn to value godliness over worldliness and sense over strife. And when they notice things starting to get heated between them and, and others, they attempt to de-escalate the problem instead of turning it into an all-out war. They quit before the quarrel breaks out. They value sense over strife. They promote Christ-centered peace instead of additional strife. I've often heard it said this way, too. And maybe you're familiar with this saying, but have you ever heard it said, you don't have to attend every fight you're invited to? You ever heard that said? You don't have to attend every fight you're invited to. Or sometimes I've heard it said this way, you don't have to attend every argument you get invited to. And I followed that up with somebody, you know, at one point I said, yeah, it's true, because when you think about it, what ends up happening is the person who's arguing like a baby to you, then you respond in kind and start arguing like a baby to them, and what ends up happening? At that point, you both sound like babies, right? And what does that accomplish? It's like, don't be a baby. Be somebody who ultimately says, all right, Lord, I don't have to respond. I don't have to take the invitation to every argument or fight or dispute over worldly things that I get invited to. I can decline that invitation, and I can seek to promote peace. And in fact, when you look at what Solomon was encouraging us to do here, that's the very thing he's encouraging us to do. He's encouraging us to be people who stop the flood of water before it becomes a flood. Stop it while it's just a drip before it becomes something that's all-consuming. And I love how he then follows that thought. You know, as he's talking about this idea of valuing sense over strife, but then he takes it a step further that I hope is something that is a useful reminder to us at any season of life. As you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, this is something that we should value. And he shows us that we're called to love unconditionally. And he does it here in one verse, in Proverbs 17, 17. It's a very easy verse reference to remember. Proverbs 17, 17. And how does he tell us to love unconditionally? Well, look at the the example he gives us here. In that verse, Proverbs 17, 17, he says it this way. He says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Do you have a few people in your life that you know will love you at all times? Do you have a few people in your life that you look at and you say, you know what? Their love for me is not going to change. I can mess a lot of things up, but their love is not going to change. There are a lot of conditional relationships I have in my life and a lot of conditional relationships you have in your life. People that love you if they can get something from you. People that love you if you do something for them. But there's a small list of people in your day-to-day life who probably show you that unconditional love. And when you find it, you want to value it. Uh, a couple people in my life that I'm truly blessed with that I, I, I know they love me unconditionally, I love them unconditionally as well, are my sisters. I grew up a big brother, and it's still very much a part of my personality. The Lord blessed me with two younger sisters, and my sisters, by the grace of God, the three of us were, were all very close. And uh, we're actually close in age, too, which is nice. And um, 
We made a pact with each other when we were kids after we observed something. It actually happened when we were teenagers. And it wasn't with our direct family, but it was with some people that we knew well enough that they felt like family. And we happened to observe three adult siblings. So here we were, three teenage siblings, but we observed three adult siblings that decided that they were going, they didn't decide to get in a conflict, but they let themselves get into a conflict. And they just decided to to fight over something that, and we didn't know all the details, but it had to do with an inheritance, it had to do with real estate transactions, and it had to do with a variety of other things. And they just decided that they were going to fight to the bitter end over it. They went from being three close siblings. So here we were as three siblings observing their lives as they were a generation ahead of us, maybe even more than a generation ahead of us. We observed their lives. We saw them getting together for, for uh, holidays and getting together for family reunions and getting together for, for all sorts of special times. And then all of a sudden, they went from being together to being completely divided and at odds with each other. And it was very uncomfortable to watch. And it seemed petty to us. Because when you're a young person, when you're a teenager, at least at that season of life, none of us, we didn't feel like we had anything to argue about of substance. So it was kind of hard to watch these, these folks at another season of life who were arguing over things that this world values, but they went, they went at it. And it divided those three siblings. And I remember my sisters and I talking to each other and about that very thing. And we're like, all right, none of us can predict what our lives are going to look like at a later season of life. We don't know when things like this are going to come our way to test us, but we don't have to do that. And we watched as it had just a ripple effect on so many people. So many people were hurt by it. And so we promised each other that none of us were going to do that when we hit that age. Like, we're not doing that. And we kind of kept that to ourselves, although I let the cat out of the bag when I officiated for my sister's wedding. I happened to mention the pact while I was officiating for her wedding. So now other people knew about it then at that point, too. It fostered some very interesting conversations, you know, after the wedding as we were talking to different people about it. But the point being... You don't want to foster division. You want to be someone who learns to love. You want to love the people in your life. You want to love unconditionally. But admittedly, there are times when close relationships, even with family members or close friends, can be tested. And by the way, that's when you find what somebody's really made of, and that's when you find what a relationship's really made out of, when it actually gets tested. And here you have Solomon explaining that, that those moments don't need to be times of division. When your relationships with your friends or in your household or with your children, when that gets tested, those don't need to be times of division. We can continue to love one another in the midst of adversity. That's what he's illustrating here. Now, one of the greatest blessings of a relationship with Jesus Christ is the realization that in Christ we are loved without condition. Do you let yourself meditate on that blessing? The fact that in Christ you are loved without condition. And consider how God the Father demonstrated His love to you. We're told this in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. It says this. It says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what Scripture tells us, that ultimately God the Father sent His Son into the world to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And it wasn't that we loved Him, it was that He loved us. It wasn't that all of a sudden we got smart one day and said, I should love God. 
The Lord looked at us and he said, I'm going to love you even when you're being unlovable, which demonstrates the fact that when he loves, it's not a conditional form of love. We weren't in a lovable spot. We didn't offer him anything of value to love. We were living as his enemies. Scripture tells us that we had our hearts set against him. But it was into that context that God the Father sent God the Son to rescue, to redeem us. And I, again, I love how it's stated there in 1 John chapter 4, that love consists in this, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Can I tell you that I think about those verses quite frequently in two specific areas of my life, in my role as a husband and in my role as a father? And I want to tell you how it goes through my mind and how I try to apply it. And I'll admit to you, I, I don't do that perfectly. Christ does this perfectly. I attempt it, but I will tell you what I'm trying to do. It's my desire as a husband and a father to try my best to create a culture in our home that actually demonstrates the unconditional love of Christ that he demonstrated to us first. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I do that perfectly because I know I don't do that perfectly, but I can tell you that I'm trying, that that's something that matters to me. The desire to love without condition What ends up happening, if you have that desire, is it's going to get tested regularly in your life. If you're married, it's going to get tested in your marriage. Somewhere along the way, you're going to have to own up to the fact that, all right, God has called me to love my spouse without condition. I can't have a prerequisite list, and I can't keep a record of wrongs. I've got to love without condition. But it also gets tested when you're a parent. You know, can can I tell you a little secret about parenting that you already know? Um... Parenting gets progressively harder before it gets progressively easier. Gets progressively hard. Why are all the moms looking with such a knowing glance right now? Several of you did. You all had the same face. You can't see each other's faces. I saw your faces. You all made the same exact one. It gets progressively harder before it gets easier. And can I tell you some internal coaching that I have given to myself in moments either when I felt tested or offended or like snapping in a way that I know that I will regret afterward, I say two things to myself. I say, love unconditionally. Now, I wish I could do that perfectly. Christ does that perfectly. But that's what my internal coaching sounds like in those moments when I can feel my blood starting to boil. My wife and I, we've had some good arguments during the years, you know? When when your blood starts to boil, what do you got to tell yourself? Hey, love unconditionally. My children make a sport out of testing me, and they are good at it, right? They are skilled at it. I love them, though. I shouldn't even say I love them, though, right? You know, it's like, as a concession, it's like, I just straight up love them. I do love them. And the funny thing is, even when they're testing me, I'm like, oh, that's a good one. I remember when I did that, too, you know? They could probably point out to you plenty of times when I have tested them. It's reciprocal. We are very human, But one of the things that I keep trying to tell myself over and over again is the type of things that Solomon was saying in Proverbs 17, the type of things that we even see, you know, in 1 John 4, the type of things we see in 1 Corinthians 6. Love covers a multitude of sins, doesn't it? Love covers a multitude of sins. You don't need to keep a record of wrong. Love will cover that. And as a recipient of the unconditional love of Christ, what do I need to preach to my own heart? Hey, John, love unconditionally. 
Don't let, you know, your children are going to have plenty of conditional relationships in this world. Your spouse is going to have plenty of conditional relationships in this world. When they experience you, do the best you can to love them unconditionally because that's how Christ is loving you. You are being loved without condition, so you should reciprocate that. You should mirror that into the lives of those that you truly care about. Love unconditionally. And, and, you know, our big theme today, we're talking about this idea of peace. Does unconditional love foster peace or does it foster division? It fosters peace. Peace in our homes, peace in our relationships, peace among our co-workers. We want to do that because that's the very thing that Christ has done for us. And I love how this portion of Scripture wraps up because it wraps up in a very helpful way for us. And I believe as we look at this, we're invited. Now, it doesn't directly say this the way I'm saying it, but you'll see why I'm saying it this way. I think we're being shown by example why we need to pray for wisdom to see beyond this moment. We've got to pray for wisdom to see beyond this moment. Otherwise, we'll start to think and live like the people that are demonstrated in verses 18, 19, and 20. Look at what it tells us in verses 18, 19, and 20 of Proverbs 17. It says, One who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. Whoever loves transgression loves strife. He who makes his door high, and I'm going to explain this statement in a minute, he who makes his door high seeks destruction. A man of crooked heart does not discover good, and one with a dishonest tongue falls into calamity. You know, it's a pattern that most people exemplify in this world. You've observed it. We've all done it as well. Most people in this world live only for today. Most people in this world live only for today. They don't think much about tomorrow. They don't make decisions that are going to benefit themselves or others in the long term. They just react to whatever comes their way without giving much thought beyond the moment. That is the dominant pattern of thinking in this world. Most people just react in the moment without thinking much beyond today. And Solomon gives a few examples of that here in this passage, because he speaks of people who who put up security for others. Do you know what he means when he's saying that? That's like the modern-day equivalent of co-signing a loan, saying you're going to get bit if you do that. Don't co-sign a loan. That's what it means to put up security for others. And some of us are like, wait, I just did that. It's like, sorry, I meant to preach on this sooner. All right, but it gets worse. It says, he also speaks of those who love transgression and make their doors high. Do you know what he means by that? I think that's not really a statement we would use. Other translations phrase it like this. They might say, or trust in high walls. You know, they make their doors high or they trust in high walls. Well, what's so wrong with that? Well, basically, in the culture at the time, that would be a symbol of arrogance. It would be a symbol of pride. That would be a symbol of trusting in your own strength and the things that you have and setting yourself apart from other people and saying that somehow you're better. He's saying, you know, if you trust in a, you know, if you make your doors high, it's like, it's like let, me, let me shut others out in an extra dramatic way. Let me trust in high walls. Let me, let me keep myself away from the rabble, right? It's a symbol of pride, a symbol of arrogance. He also talks about the nature of living with a crooked heart and with a dishonest tongue. And basically, I think each of those things, as he's illustrating them here, I think each of these are evidence of living with a short-term perspective. If you embrace any one of those things, I think you're, you're forgetting what can come next, right? You're not looking at the rest of the story. You're not thinking about life beyond the moment. It's, it's all about living with a short-term perspective. But think about the difference Christ makes in your life and in my life. Through Christ, we can experience 
an eternal perspective. We can live in the moment, right? You can still live in the moment, but we could foster a faithful eye toward the future at the same time. We can pray that the Lord will increase our wisdom, that He'll, that he'll open our eyes to be able to see the things that He has in store so that these things are not escaping our attention, so that we're not just among the billions of people just living for the moment. What Christ is doing for us is a blessing because He's granting us a hopeful perspective. And He grants, those to all, he grants that to everyone who trusts in Him, and to everyone who seeks Him and, and relies on His guidance. He enables us to see beyond the moment. That's something I would encourage us as people who know Jesus Christ to be praying for, that we would pray for wisdom to see beyond the moment so that we don't embrace a mindset that just lives for today. Let me say this as we finish up this morning. As Solomon explains here in Proverbs chapter 17, again, one of those chapters where he does a lot of contrasting, as he does all throughout this section. We still have a few more chapters where he's going to do additional contrasting. But as he explains here in Proverbs 17, we can choose to be the type of people who feed the fires of drama. We can foster a culture of Christ-empowered peace. Those are the options. That's the contrast he's giving us here in this passage. So let me say this. If we're people who have hearts that are ruled by Christ's peace, let's use that in a particular way to give this world a powerful glimpse of the transformative work that he's doing in our hearts and doing in our minds so that others will ultimately gain a glimpse of him through the effects of what he's accomplishing within us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this together today and to think about the things that you're doing. Lord, within us as your believers, within us as your, as your family, you're helping us to understand things that, naturally speaking, we wouldn't really catch on to. You're helping us to see things that, that show us why we should actually value peace over worldly drama. Father, we know that that one of the names that that your word references your son by is this idea that he is the prince of peace. And you tell us that through faith in your son that, that our hearts will be guarded and our minds will be guarded and kept in his peace. So we want to be people who who ultimately display lives that value that. Lord, we pray that that would have a direct application in the ways in which we lead in our homes. We pray that that would have a direct application on the ways in which we conduct our relationships, the the ways in which we conduct our marriages, the way we parent, the way we interact with our church family. Ultimately, Lord, that's something that we know that you desire of us, and so we, we pray that we would desire it as well. We know, Lord, that it ultimately comes from your heart. You're not, you're not seeking to promote division. You're not promoting chaos. You're, tr- you're trying to ultimately envelop us in your love and foster peace within us. So, Lord, we pray that these would be things that stay fresh in our mind in every context of life that we find ourselves in. We're just so grateful for these reminders from your word today. The verses we had the privilege to look at from Proverbs, also what we've had to look at from 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 John chapter 4. Each of these scriptures, Lord, as they work together to give us the full picture of what you're accomplishing, it's a blessing to us to be able to spend some time in our week looking at these things. 
So again, Lord, if we've been tempted to go in a direction of drama, we pray that instead we would, we would reverse course and we would rely on your power to promote peace. And that the unconditional love that we have received from you would be something that we would be eager to demonstrate because we need it. And therefore, if we need it, we also know that, that those that are in our lives, our wives, our children, our spouses, our neighbors, our friends, Lord, they need that as well. So thank you, Lord, for this reminder from your word, and thank you for empowering us to live it out. And we commit ourselves to you now and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everybody. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. We're hosts of the Kainos Project podcast. Where we help you tackle ancient Christian truths in everyday settings. To learn more and subscribe, go to lifeaudio.com.